Okay, so tonight, this, this will wrap up our Saint series. Um, as you know, we've been going through uh, November as kind of an extended um, uh, celebration of November 1st, which is All Saints Day. So we've just kind of taken this month to, to highlight a different uh, believer um, or follower of God um, each week uh, and just kind of look at what their life could say to ours. And, uh, and this is our final week there. Um, first week, if you remember, we did Brother Lawrence from the book Practicing the Presence of God, who is a soldier that was uh, really uh, impressed with God. And uh, so he, he joined a, uh, a brotherhood, a monk brotherhood, uh, and, and engaged in the monastic life. And as he was uh, living this life, people started to notice there was something different about him. They started asking him questions, and, and his uh, kind of life was simple. He tried to remain aware of the presence of God at all times. And it was really that simple. And when he would, when his mind would wander, he would draw it back to God. And he just, so uh, they put a book together about it. And um, he just is kind of the master of seeing God in the everyday moment. And he, uh, he said that there was no difference to him in doing dishes than there was in the set times of prayer, because God was just that real to him at all times. And so then next week we did uh, Bezalel from the Old Testament, who was this guy that the Bible tells us that God gave him the spirit of God so that he could do his work well. He was a craftsman, and God just filled him with the spirit of God that he would be a good craftsman. And so we talked about vocation and how important our work is to God, just our ordinary work and how there is no difference um, between uh, spiritual work and non-spiritual work that's a that's a division we've created but to god all work is spiritual and if we if adam and eve had never eaten the fruit and no one had ever fallen uh, we would still be working because god gave uh, adam jobs before there was ever sin and so part of our job as a church is to kind of restore our relationship to our vocation uh, that was broken in the fall and so uh, we talked about bezalel with that last week we talked about Catherine booth um, who was uh, the kind of co-founder of the Salvation Army, um, this kind of Wonder Woman uh, creation that uh, she was like a super mom and a super evangelist and made money when her husband couldn't and took over his job when he couldn't. And she uh, cooked 300 meals on Christmas to give away to the poor and she just took care of people and she was just incredible. And we talked about her life um, and then kind of honed in on on how good of a of a uh, team builder she was, that she didn't do anything alone. She was awesome at creating a support system. And so we kind of looked at her life as a picture of what you can accomplish if you uh, surround yourself with others um, and how different that is from the kind of the American uh, individualist, you know, independent spirit. You know, we, we kind of have, we talked about that meme, you know, if, it, if, if, uh, if all you have is God, you have all you need. And we, you know, we, we talked about how we kind of resonate with that and how absolutely false that is. How if it was just you and God and you were in a perfect garden and it was just the two of you, his response to that would be, it's not good for man to be alone. Because that's what he said to Adam before there was ever sin. It is not good for us to be alone. We were never in, intended to be independent. We were intended for community. We were made for each other. And so we talked about Catherine Booth and how uh, she told her kids every single day, you are not made for yourself, you are made for the world and they're waiting for you. That we were intended to be connected to one another. And there's some, one thing that kind of jumped out at me this week, and I hope this is kind of, um, uh, well, I, hopefully you've noticed this, but 
the group of people we kind of pulled out this, uh, this year, we have um, a Catholic. Uh, Brother Lawrence was a, a Catholic monk. Um, we have a Jew in Bezalel. We have uh, a Methodist um, in Catherine Booth. And tonight we're going to talk about a Quaker. Um, and I know that kind of sounds like a bad joke. A Catholic, a Jew, a Methodist, and a Quaker went into a bar. Um, but uh, but I, could, I could spend time and, and tell you tonight what I theologically disagree with each of these um, groups. I could tell you the problems I have with Catholicism. I could tell you... Um, the, you know, I could say Bezalel's Old Covenant, he's Old Testament, you know, or I could say Catherine Booth's a Methodist, and we all know what we think of those guys. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying that because my friend Jim's over here. He's the, he's, this is the pastor of the Methodist Church. Um, he's here tonight with us. Um, and I could do the same with the Quakers. The Quakers have a few, a few fundamental theologies I, sh- I struggle with. But if I were to close off the door to those people because of the things I disagree with, um, they wouldn't have the impact on my life that they've had. And these are four people that have really shaped who I am as a person. And so hopefully we can recognize that we can learn from other people, even when we disagree with them, that we never want to shut that door and say, oh, no, that's not my camp. And so I don't talk to those people um, because we have a lot to learn from everybody. So tonight we're going to John Woolman. Go ahead. And John Woolman um, was born in 1720. So he's... Uh, uh, kind of an early, uh, in America, so he's kind of an early colonial, um, and, uh, and he was raised a Quaker. He was raised on a farm. His dad was a farmer, <coughs> and he had this, uh, he was kind of known for his sensitive conscience, and what was kind of cool about uh, John Woolman was um, the way his, um, I guess, behavioral uh, theology worked was he would do something, and it, if it hurt his conscience, then he would know I shouldn't do that anymore. Like, and he would do something, it would feel terrible to do it. And so he would stop doing it after that. And he, he was out when he was really young. There's a story that a lot of people that write about him tell where um, he had rocks and he was out hunting birds with rocks. He was just throwing rocks at birds and wasn't getting any. And he was, and he was dreaming of bringing a bird home for his mom. Like if my mom could cook this, you know, bird for dinner and blah, blah. And so he sees a nest and there's a bird's head sticking up out of it. And it was a robin, like you're going to fix robin for dinner. But he throws a rock at this thing and hits it and actually manages with a rock to kill this robin. And so he runs over and grabs the bird and it was still kind of flopping and whatnot. And he breaks its neck. And so he's going to take it home for mom to cook up this robin. And he hears little peeps, peep, peep, peep. And so he climbs up and there was four chicks in the nest. And, uh, and his heart was absolutely broken. And so he broke all four of their necks. He just wanted to get it over with quick. He knew he couldn't, he knew he couldn't keep them alive. And he didn't want them to starve to death slowly. So he broke all four of their necks and went home and just wept. And, uh, and from then on, he was... Um, from then on, he was an animal rights activist, honestly. He would, from, he, something about that activity, something about killing that robin and, and seeing the, di- the damage it did just broke his heart. And so this kind of became the way he did things. When he did something and it hurt him and he felt bad about it, he'd stop doing it. And so, um, so he, was, he grew up this way with this really sensitive uh, conscience. And, and as he grew, he realized he didn't want to be a farmer. He liked, um, he had really delicate hands and liked working with, you know, with his hands. And so he became a clerk, um, a bookkeeper in an office or in a, uh, in a shop. And, uh, and he was quickly, his handwriting was so good that they put him in charge of 
doing wills and marriage certificates and things because he had the really good handwriting. And he also kept the books for the shop. And he was quite successful. Go ahead. Um, and so uh, as, he, uh, as the kind of clerk for this shop, he would get called out to people's houses to, to write contracts and, and do these kind of things for people. And one day he got called out to uh, fill out a bill of sale um, for a Negro, um, for an African-American slave. And he went out, and this really bothered him. Um, but he, he's, this is my job, this is what I'm being paid to do. And so he wrote the bill of sale. And he, uh, and he could not sleep afterwards. And, and he was drawn back to the feeling of those birds. And, and, uh, and this felt the same way. Like he did his job, but something didn't feel good about it. And so he committed to himself um, not to ever do that again. And so um, not long after that, uh, he got called out. Um, I'm going to actually read uh, an excerpt from his journal. But he got called out uh, to do another transaction. And here's what the excerpt says. It says, a neighbor received a bad bruise on his body and sent for me to bleed him. Different times. Um, which having done, he desired me to write his will. I took notes, and among other things, he told me uh, to which his children to he told me to which of his children he would give his young negro. I considered the pain and distress he was in, and I knew not how it would end. So I wrote his will, save only that part concerning his slave, and carrying it uh, to his bedside, I read it to him. I then told him in a friendly way that I could not write any instruments by which my fellow creatures were made slaves without being, bringing trouble to my own mind. I let him know I charged nothing for what I had done, and I desired that he would excuse me from doing the other part in the way that he had proposed. We then had a serious conference on the subject, and he at length agreed to set her free. So I finished his will. And so... Uh, and something about this conversation, he has this conversation, and he, and he gently said, I can't, I can't do this. I'm not going to charge you for the part I have done. My time is free. Please excuse me from this. You should be able to find anybody who can fill out that last part, but I personally can't do it. And it spawned a conversation. Something in his gentleness, which became kind of his theme, um, led this person to actually free his slave. And something in this made John Woolman realize that he had a voice, that he had um, the ability to talk to people and see change done. And he was never uh, able to get out of his mind that there was now a person who was free because of a conversation that he had. This just impressed him forever. And so he, uh, being a Quaker, they kind of had a conviction toward um, uh, simplicity. It's a discipline that, that they do. So not having more than you need and so um, he had been so successful in business up to this point that it was kind of taking all of his time and all of his attention. So he uh, quit his job as a clerk. And during this time, he had taught himself to be a tailor. He was really good with, his, with detailed work, and he was a really good tailor. And so he quit his job as a clerk, uh, stepped out of his shop, and uh, became a, a tailor and a traveling evangelist. Um, he wanted to talk to more people about... Um, his issues with slavery. And so he went on a missionary journey in 1746 when he was 26 years old. And he went to, uh, go ahead, he went, he traveled 1,500 miles in three months, just from Quaker church to Quaker church to Quaker church, um, talking to people. And on his travels, he kept being confronted with just how much 
of what everybody used every day came from the work of slaves. And this really bothered him. And so he, uh, um, he started making changes to his life. He stopped eating sugar completely because most sugar was harvested by slaves. Um, he stopped wearing dyed clothes. He wore completely undyed clothes because, um, and this wasn't just slaves. There was women and men that worked in the dye factories too, but the dyes were so toxic and so bad for people that he was convicted against people having to work in that just so he could wear fancy colored clothes. And so he stopped wearing dyed clothes completely. Um, he was on a coach from one city to another, and, he, and his coachman, the horse was acting up, and so his coachman got off and beat the horse. And, uh, and so he stopped. If, it, if he couldn't ride his own horse that he knew was treated well, he just stopped riding coaches, and he would walk from town to town, from Quaker church to Quaker church. Um, all kinds of, when he would stop at someone's house and they had slaves, he would always, before he would stay there, he would ask the, the person of the house, if, uh, are you okay if I pay your slaves for the work they do for me while, they're, while I'm here? And if they wouldn't let him pay them, then he wouldn't stay. He would find another place, oftentimes sleeping um, on the side of the road rather than stay somewhere where, where slaves would have, to, um, uh, would have to work for him. And this went on to, uh, he had a problem with the, the taxes that people were paying so that England could fight a war against France somewhere else. And he, he hated the idea of Christians killing Christians somewhere else and me paying for it. And so he was, he was uh, protesting war taxes and, and he was, things would break his heart and he would put it into action. He would find a way to say, um, in that case, I can't, I can't be a part of that. So, um, in most of the places Woolman went, most of the Quaker churches he went to, um, he got kind of an icy reception. You know, the people had done very well using slaves, and Quakers were notorious, I guess, notorious for treating their slaves well. And so he's talking in churches where, for the most part, most Quakers, being a more gentle uh, disposition anyway, weren't necessarily mean to their slaves. And so these people are having a really hard time with his theology because they were comparing themselves um, to other people that were very, very cruel to their slaves. And so, uh, but he would just keep talking. He would tell his story and then he would leave behind some literature. He wrote this uh, kind of famous pamphlet called um, Considerations Concerning the Keeping of Negroes is the title of it. And you can actually get online and get it. It's, uh, it's very good. Um, 19, and in 1954, um, the uh, Quaker... Uh, kind of conference, finally embraced this and started kind of publishing it and putting it out uh, for other Quakers to consider. Um, and then in 56, he started keeping his journal, um, the Journal of John Woolman, which is considered a piece of kind of classic English literature. Uh, it's really good. I recommend it. He's a great writer. Um, and what I love about John Woolman is, is mostly how ahead of his time he was. Because you've got to remember, this is, this is uh, 1740s and 1750s. This is 100 years before the rest of the country started thinking about this. And John Woolman was traveling around talking to people about slavery. Go ahead. Um, John Woolman played the long game. Uh, he, he planned farther out than we're used to. He knew he was not going to have an impact in his lifetime. I mean, he knew that the grip of slavery, and he says it in his journey, was, was too deep for him to see it ended. And yet he continued to move in the right direction. 
In 72, he traveled to England to speak um, at the, the uh, national or the annual um, Quaker conference thing uh, that they had out there. And he was asked to come speak on this subject. His pamphlet had made it uh, over the pond and they were looking at it. And when he first got there, it was, uh, again, completely icy reception. Nobody would really talk to him, but um, they had him up and speak and something in his delivery was, uh, was so compelling and he was so gentle um, and just the way he talked um, that by the end of the conference, the, the, the English Quakers denomination or whatever that would be, Society of Friends, um, actually embraced his, his pamphlet and made it illegal within the Quaker denomination to own slaves. In 1972, they declared... Um, they declared it illegal to own a slave and be a Quaker. And unfortunately, John Woolman didn't get to see the fruits of that because he died on that trip. He had contracted smallpox, most likely on the ship on the way over because he, uh, he, although he paid for a passenger ticket, he felt bad that the crew was working underneath. So on the way to England from America, he went down and worked with the crew in the bottom of the boat. And they think he probably got sick while he was down there. And he died in England, um, just not long after they they passed this. And then uh, a couple years later, in 76, the American branch of of the Quaker denomination followed suit and outlawed slavery um, in the the Quaker denomination in America. Um, And then in 83, 1783, um, the British Quakers were the very first people citing John Woolman's writings to petition Parliament in England to end slavery nationally. Um, the Quakers were the very first ones to petition uh, Parliament, and it was um, 33, 1833, so 50 years later that they finally um, passed uh, the abolition of slavery in England. And in uh, 1776, the same, uh, or no, in 1883, same time as they did in England, the, the American Quakers were the very first people to petition Congress. And I think at that point it was still a Continental Congress. Like it was still pretty much brand new. Um, in 83, 1783, the Quakers as a denomination petitioned Congress to end slavery in America. And it was obviously uh, 1865, over 100 years later that it actually happened. Um, and again, the American Quakers were citing um, all of John Woolman's writings when they did that. And so here's this guy who over a hundred years before his time, feels something in his conscience and he feels that something is wrong and something is bad. And, uh, and he just sets out to, to make changes, to talk to people, to share his convictions, to share his heart. And well over a hundred years later, it finally happens. And that is just not in our vocabulary. We're a microwave in fact, when I was thinking about that phrase, you guys have heard that phrase, we're a microwave generation. You guys remember the microwave generation? How many of you have ever put something in a microwave and said they're going, oh my God, this is taking so long? <laughs> like, that's me now. Like, microwave generation was like so 20 years ago. Like, now we're an internet generation. I tease my kids all the time because, um, you know that feeling when you're, when we were, most of us were young, when it's like, who is that, who is that actor that was in that, um, you know, the, and we just had to live like that. Like, we just had to sit in that and just like, I, oh, man, hmm, oh, well, hmm, because that's going to bug me all day. Now it's like, it's like, who's that guy? Hold on. Oh, yeah, it's him. That's right. Okay, good. 
Like we don't even have to fight with that, with that itch anymore. Like we want, we get immediate information, immediate, you know, microwaves are so slow now. Like we're not just a microwave generation, we're faster than that now. And it bleeds into our, to our social change because we want everything done now. We want change now. We want everything fixed now. Like none of us are willing because heart change is slow. That's the slow road. To actually believe that we can change people's hearts and we can show them something better and we can let that slowly change more hearts and change more hearts until it finally starts to change groups of people. And those groups of people kind of gather together and change policy. We just want, we want to go to the ballot box, punch a thing in, and it's going to be fixed. We just want it fixed right now. Because like, heart change takes forever. But that's what we've been called to. One of the things that impressed me most about Woolman is uh, he was recognized for his gentleness. And this was huge. Uh, there was another guy, uh, Benjamin Lay. And in most books, Benjamin Lay is actually cited as one of the earliest um, Quaker uh, abolitionists because he was actually writing a little bit ahead of, um, of John Woolman. And Benjamin Lay was your, your kind of typical prophetic, you know, hard-headed, you know, you guys are sinners and this has to stop, blah, blah, blah. In fact, there was a, there was a kind of a famous story of his where he stood up and preached at a church and, uh, and when he wasn't getting a good reception, he had brought a, uh, uh, a little cup of pig's blood and he threw it on the crowd and there's blood on your hands like as an object lesson. And Benjamin Lay was ejected from the Quaker denomination. Um, they, uh, he really was. They, they, uh, they excommunicated Benjamin Lay. And what's, what's interesting is he had the exact same message as John Woolman. The identical message, and, and even the, the scriptures he was referring to, and even the things he was saying were almost identical, but his method was considerably different. Everybody said that uh, John Woolman, you couldn't talk to him without feeling like he was more concerned with you than he was the slave. Like that he was, and, and he would actually write this, that he would say, I can't imagine the damage it does to a human heart to own another human being. And, 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 how, and I can't imagine how you could ever be close to the Almighty with that kind of um, thickness on your heart. Like, it, that how do you ever get the tenderness? If you're willing to own another human being as property, how could you ever get the tenderness to approach God? And so he was so concerned. His concern was really for the slavers. And he was like, and, and so he would look at his fellow Quakers and he would be like, like, I don't, I can't imagine what you're missing by living in this condition. Nobody got that from Benjamin Lay. <laughs> um, I want to read one passage. It was actually the passage we read earlier. It said, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks of himself as something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in him alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Jesus said something similar. Go ahead. 
where he said, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me help you remove the speck from your eye? And look, there's a plank in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What I love most about both these passages is they don't tell us not to correct other people. They don't tell us that we're, you know, that we're never supposed to look at someone else's life and say, you know, that there's something wrong there. Like, if, if anything, they actually call us to do that. They call us um, to help other people overcome sin. They just give us the, the method. They give us the means that first we look in our own heart. That's where we go first. And we always start there. And then we can talk to somebody else. Galatians tells us we have to, like it commands us to restore people. Restore such a one. That's our duty is to restore them, to look at their, look at their life and say, let me help you find your way back. Matthew does tell you to, to help me with the speck in my eye. It tells you to do that. It just tells you to take care of the plank first. How do we respond to this? First thing is, we have to know that anything good in this world starts here. Actually, it starts, it starts here. It starts in our heart first. That's what I love about Woolman. Is everybody said that, um, people that wrote about John Woolman said that he, he would never um, like, tell you what you were doing was wrong. He would just tell his story. He would tell his story about how he had, um, how he had written a bill of sale for a slave and how that had broken his heart and how, how hurtful it was. And then he would, t- he would tell you his stories of, of what he had seen while he was out and how much that hurt him. And, and he was constantly, never once did he tell somebody um, to, to s- s- sell their slaves or to stand up for abolition um, without him first doing whatever he had to do. And when it, whenever he didn't use silverware, he stopped using silverware because he went to a silver mine that was being run by slaves. And so he carried wooden silverware with him that he carved himself. And he was just like, how do I dare go to somebody and say, get rid of your slaves while I sit there and eat with silverware they made? Like, who, how could I do that? So he always started with his own heart. And can you imagine the conversation when you're sitting at the dinner table and he whips out these clunky, you know, wooden, you know, things and, and never did he expect anyone else to do it. Never did he tell them, you know, you realize that silverware, blah, blah, blah. He would just say, you know, I went to a silver mine once and I saw these slaves digging the silver and it just broke my heart. I just, it's easier for me and my conscience if I just eat with these. It just is. And people were so moved by this that he swung an entire denomination We have a tendency to yell about what's going on out there, what those people are doing. You know, we, man, I just, I hate that they're letting this happen out there. I hate that those people are doing this and, oh, those filmmakers and all the, you know. It has to start here. We have to start with us. The second thing is that gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. That, um, you know, we typically 
value boldness and aggression and passion and, you know, these, these kind of big outward, you know, things. And not that it, not that God never looks that way, but I think usually if it's the Holy Spirit, it's gentle. And usually he, uh, you know, when, when the Holy Spirit convicts us of something, it comes with the encouragement and the strength to do it. Like it feels good. Like if it, if if you're doing something, it just it feels crushing. Like, and it's you know you feel just shame. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. Shame is never from the Holy Spirit. Now guilt, on the other hand, just this feeling of I want to do it better, and it comes with the encouragement of knowing I can make a difference. That's usually the way the Holy Spirit works. When when we confront someone, it's got to have we have to earn that, first of all. You have to earn the space to go, hey, can I talk to you about something in your world? And, you know what I mean? I can think of people that, you know, and we've talked about this, who could come to me and say, hey, I'm concerned about you. And, and for me to go, if that person is in my space, um, it must be real because I know they love me. Like, I know they have my best interests are. This isn't them just being crappy and wanting to pick on me. Like, this person wouldn't do that. And so I have people in my life that can come, they can come to me and just and confront me if they see something. And, and above all else, I know that they have my best interest in mind. And that's important to surround ourselves with people like that. And it means when you get to know somebody, sometimes you have to stay a while and earn the right to get in their space. Because they'll definitely have stuff in their life that'll bug you. They definitely will. And if you walk around feeling like the great avenger, like it's my job to straighten, fix all wrongs, and blah, 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 then you don't make very many friends. You know, don't throw pig's blood, is what I'm saying. <laughs> don't do that. That's not the way we handle things. We work on our heart, heart first, and then we, we're just gentle. We get, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit's there, the fruit will be gentleness. Jesus won us over with maybe the most gentle act you can imagine. He went to a cross while they were beating him. I mean, he even said, don't you realize I could call down legions of angels right now? Like, I could do the war thing. I could do the aggression thing. I can do the, the dramatic thing. But what would, that, what would that fix? What would that help? And so he took the gentle route and he hung on a cross. And it changed everything because he chose that route. He chose to kind of absorb and bear the abuse um, rather than combat it, rather than fight it. And that's what John Woolman did. He just 